ahead and turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. You know, I was talking with Pastor Steve in preparation for this morning. And uh, one thing he said to me, kids, is he said, the longer you go, the better. He said, you guys like really long messages. Is that right? Really long All right. Well, no worries. I won't make it really long. But Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And as we dive in this morning, I just want to start by by bringing you into my life a little bit. When I was a kid, I had a friend. His name was Jim. And Jim and I were thick as thieves. We had lots of fun together. We played together. We went to school together. We played basketball together. We we, we roughhoused together. Kids, do you have any friends that you roughhouse with? Do you guys like to wrestle? How many of you boys like to wrestle? Yeah, you like to wrestle? Girls, how many of you like to wrestle? Okay, we've got some girls out there. But Jim and I were thick as thieves. And, and roughhousing was one of those things that was kind of, a, kind, of, kind of a mark of our friendship. We played really intensely together. And one thing that we would do a lot is shadow box. You guys know what shadow boxing is? Have you ever heard of that before? Where you're pretending to fight. You're pretending to be in an epic battle to the death. And you're swinging at the air, right? And and you're pretending to make contact with the other person. Well, there was one memory I have of me and Jim. We were in in the gymnasium one day. We were off to the side. We were swinging at one another, just pretending and being playful. And I don't know what it was, but something in me caused me to lean in. And something in him caused him to lean in and... His fist made contact with my face. It hurt. You know, this type of pain was new to me as a kid. I I wasn't the kind of kid that got into a lot of fights. I know that might be surprising to you. I'm with, with my physique and all. I mean, being a beast of a man, you'd think certainly this boy fought a lot. No, I didn't. Um, didn't get a lot of fights. This pain was new. I hadn't been, you know, I wasn't that type of a violent kid. And you know what? It hurt. It hurt. But you know what? Looking back on that moment, I learned some valuable lessons that day about life. You know what? Swinging at shadows is a wasted effort, right? It's a wasted effort. You burn a lot of calories. And you don't have often anything to show for it. And lasting change came when Jim connected with what was real. His fist made contact with my face. Lasting change. You know, truth is, brothers and sisters, we do a lot of things in our journey of faith, right? A lot of times in our walk with the Lord, we tend to waste a lot of energy. There's a lot of expended effort. We do a lot of things, good things even, right? We expend a lot of spiritual calories. We invest in a lot of different areas. Yet, much like my friend and me engaging in this epic shadow boxing battle, we fail to connect with what is real in our spiritual journey. We miss the point of why we were called. And you know what? In so doing, we fail to connect with the very essence of our Christian faith. You know, one of my favorite books in Scripture is the book of Philippians. And in it, the Apostle Paul is challenging the church at Philippi. 
to stop swinging at shadows and to connect with the very essence of their Christian faith. You know, he writes in Philippians chapter 3, and I, I'd invite you to read along with me, and I believe I have the scriptures up on the back uh, behind me as well. But Philippians chapter 3, he writes in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained or obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You know, as Paul opens up this letter to these people, his, his call to them is simple. Rejoice, right? Live lives that are dominated by joy. Have hearts that are absolutely anchored in the peace and acceptance that only God can give. Peace because there's an absence of conflict with God. Because I'm, I'm, I'm surrendered to what it is that he has. But also acceptance that comes on the merits of his son's ultimate sacrifice. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. Live lives that are dominated by a resiliency that comes only from connecting with, with what is real. Life in Christ. As he moves on in the chapter, he's expressing his love and his care for the people of Philippi through taking time to warn them of the things that were ultimately damaging uh, to their pursuit of Jesus. He writes in verse 1, to write these same things to you is no trouble. In fact, for you, it is safe. You know, Paul looked to Philippi much the same way that that a dad looks to his children. 
with deep-rooted love in his heart. He sought to alert them to the pitfalls that often come from living a life of devotion. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's addressing them. He, he clearly had one group in mind. One group in mind whose philosophy was so destructive, so divisive, and so damaging that he felt it necessary to use such harsh language when speaking of them. You know, he referred to them as dogs. He referred to them as evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. He was undoubtedly speaking here of the Pharisees, the strictest religious sect of the day. And you might be saying to yourself, really? Religion? What was it that Paul was so worried about? What is it about religion, specifically this type of religion, that Paul found so divisive? You know, as Paul was addressing them, he recognized that this religion drove the hearts of the people from a God of mercy and grace to a regimented list of rules and regulations. This religion awakened the people's heart to a sense of spiritual accomplishment, of spiritual elitism that was comparative in its very nature. This religion became a means for these people of earning God's favor as opposed to recognizing that apart from God's grace, we all stand condemned. This religion sought to establish a man-centeredness when God deserved to be at the very core of who they were. This religion got it all wrong. The Pharisees were missing the point, and what's worse, they were drawing many people into their darkened ways of thinking, their bankrupt ways of living. In fact, Paul states in verse 3 that the essence of a way that honors God has nothing to do with physical regulations, circumcision, right? But that we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put zero confidence in the flesh. This was a path that Paul knew all too well. This path of the Pharisee. In fact, as Paul begins to list out his fleshly credentials, he is quick to point out that if anyone had reason to boast in the flesh, certainly he had more, right? Look at this list of credentials with me, if you will. By right, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he was born into a highly devoted family. Circumcision was a right that marked you as a man of faith and thus confirmed you in the covenant that God had established with his people. Paul fit the bill. He was circumcised on the eighth day. By relationship, he was of of the tribe of Benjamin. This was a pretty powerful tribe. King Saul came from this tribe. It was a warring tribe. It was a brave tribe. Mordecai and Esther came from the tribe of Benjamin. You remember them, right? God did some great things through them. This carried a lot of weight. It was something special to say that you were of the tribe of Benjamin. But to be a a pure-born Jew was a pretty impressive thing. He goes on to say that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a real Jew if ever there was one. It's kind of like saying I'm a man's man or um, the pastor's pastor, right? The, the, The individual that has such a deep and devoted heart for God and heart for people that, man, he's a pastor to the pastors. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a real Jew if ever there was one. 
But not only that, he was a Pharisee. He was devout. He was educated. He was committed. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. I mean, he was, this guy was passionate. Man, he had some credentials. But he didn't stop there. He was zealous. He's a persecutor, persecutor of the church. He longed for religious purity. He didn't want to see anybody corrupted. You say, how in the world could he call himself a man of God and beat down the church of Jesus Christ? He was passionate. He was devoted. He was zealous. He was righteous by the worldly standards. Concerning the law, he was blameless. He lived a life without handles. You could never look at a guy like Paul and say, this man is anything but 150% all in, committed to his values, committed to his faith, committed to his beliefs. He was a happening dude. He's a pretty special guy. He had it all together. He came from good stock. He did all the right things. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that was my life to a T before I met Jesus. You know, and I'm, I'm guessing that there's probably a few people in this room that will be able to relate to this as well. You know, when I was a kid, I was in church every time the doors were open. Mom and dad didn't give me a choice. Raised in a Christian home, you get used to the regiment, right? You get used to the rules. You get used to living the certain way. I memorized scripture. I memorized a lot of scripture as a kid because mom and dad believed, hide God's word in your heart. Psalm 119.11, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And you know what? We memorized large chunks of scripture. We memorized passages, not just verses. We knew the Romans road. We, we, we knew so many different things. I was involved in youth group. Every Wednesday night, committed, active, engaged. Every youth activity, I was there. Every youth event, I was there. Every winter camp, summer camp, I was there. I started serving in ministry as a kid. I prayed prayer when I was young to ask Jesus into my heart, right? All these things are good. Nothing about it is bad. But I was baptized, I was baptized when I was 12. I was a good kid. And yet, in spite of all of those things, my heart was empty. I felt like I was swinging in shadows. Like I was sitting on an exercise bike in the middle of a busy street, pedaling hard, yet going nowhere. You know, much like the Apostle Paul, I echoed his words in verses 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Loss, rubbish, refuse, dung. Right? That's, that's, that's the word that he's using here. I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. All those things that I thought were earning me favor in God's eyes were actually driving me further and further away from him and sealing my fate for a Christless eternity. You know, it wasn't until I was able to connect with the reality that at my best, at my brightest, at my most noble, I was nothing more than a beautiful abomination in God's eyes.
And it wasn't until I was able to see that that I was able for the first time in my life to understand what it meant to be considered a child of God. And that was Paul's point. That's the crux of what he's wanting the Philippian people to understand. Those things that you think are gained to you. Those things that you think that are pushing you ahead in your journey, right? Those things that, that you prioritize ahead of devotion to God are actually rubbish. Those things in life that, are ascri- that you are ascribing infinite value to could be actually damning for you. Those things that you are banking on to give you right standing in the eyes of God could be sending you to hell. Philippian people, you're missing it. You're failing to connect with what is real in your faith with God. All those things that you are hopelessly clinging to are nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He is of infinite value. In fact, I would give up all things, he says, that I might gain Christ. Let me ask you a question, church family. How does this resonate with you this morning? If you're anything like me, this reality raises a lot of troubling questions in your heart. How do I know if I am like Paul in battling with the way of a Pharisee? You know, as I was preparing for this morning, I I started asking some questions of myself. Just that—that's just how I prepare, right? Get get into the rhythm of of asking the question: How does this passage hit me first? Some questions that came to my mind: One, am I more concerned with externals than I am with running hard after Christ? Am I more concerned with externals? When I say externals, meaning how how do I look? How do I, what what kind of an impression do I give off? Am I more concerned with what people will think on Sunday of me than I am with running hard after Christ? How important, how significant is that image that others have of me? Next question, do I worry more about, about obeying God when others are watching? Do I worry about it more when people are around? This is a painful one for me because it's revealing of my, my own flesh struggle. When I'm by myself, that is the truest form of who I am. Do I worry more about obeying God when others are watching? Next question, do I worry more about getting caught than about what I've done? That makes sense? Kids, I'm sure you think about this sometimes, right? When it comes to obeying mom and dad, you weigh the consequences, right? Sometimes consequences are going to be really great, really significant when I say great, not awesome, not like, yay, consequences. But sometimes they're pretty significant. Sometimes, maybe not so much. Do you worry more about getting caught than about what you've done? Next question, do I act in a way, in one way with my Christian friends and another way with my non-Christian friends? You know, this impacts adults just as much as kids. But how am I around people? Am I, truthfully, I, can I say I am who I am and I, I'm honest and I'm transparent and I'm open with those who don't know Jesus as well as those who do? Do I live that same way? Am I different? Do I act one way with my Christian friends and another with my non-Christian friends? Do I get angry when friends get away with things that I don't? Do I find myself really fixating on that and saying, come on, that's not fair. 
Johnny gets to do this. Billy gets to do that. That's not fair. Or even as adults, we think about it. Do I spend more time thinking about fixing others than I spend wanting God to change me? Do I stop for regular attitude checks about my love for God and others? Am I willing to pause, right? Pause the busyness. Step back and really evaluate. Do I let society and my friends decide what is sin and what isn't? Do I let culture dictate that for me? Or is God's truth God's truth? Do I worry too much about what people think? Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, kids, Snapchat. Do I worry too much about what people think? Am I, am I placing too much stock in that appearance? Do I use myself as a standard for judging others? Do I avoid people who don't think and act just like me? Do I keep a running list of all the ministry things I'm doing? Do I find fulfillment in knowing how many different things I have going on? A lot of questions here. You know what? What do all these questions have in common? They all have me in the center. These are the things that are gain to me. Right? And there can even be good things that are in the midst of that list. But if you're doing them for the purpose of advancing your own cause, for advancing your own name, for pushing yourself forward in a way to gain prominence in the eyes of others, and even in the eyes of God, those things are gained to you. This list is by no means exhaustive. Though if you're like me, you know what? The heart of the Pharisee hits much too close to home. What is the answer, brothers and sisters? True and lasting change comes as we recognize, like Paul, that the Pharisee that lives in all of us, those things that are gained to me, need to be counted as rubbish that we might gain Christ. Right? They need to be counted as rubbish that we might gain Christ. So what does it look like, church family, to forsake the counterfeit ways of the Pharisee that I might gain Christ? As the Apostle Paul unfolds the rest of this passage here this morning, he provides for us three key elements that are essential to connecting with what is real and forsaking the counterfeit. The first of which we see in verse 9. Paul writes, he he talks about this fixed position. That's our first point. Fixed position. Verse 9, he says this, Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You know, in contrast to living for self, Paul is stating here that the only thing that matters in life is being found in him, in Jesus. You know, my righteousness is damning. That which is gain to me leads to death. On the contrary, in Jesus I find what? I find life. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul writes, As in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. 
You know, I did nothing to be born into, in, into the race of Adam, right? That's our sin nature. That's what we inherited. That's what we, we get to thank Adam for. You know, I tell my kids, when we get to heaven, you know, if, if Adam's there and you're ever wondering who Adam is, look for the guy with the black eye. Because I, I can imagine getting to heaven and saying, Jesus, it's great to see you. Where's Adam? I just want to... I'm not a violent person. I'm just teasing. But as an Adam, all die. You know, this isn't merely a, a practical death. This isn't just you get to the end of your life, you die, you cease being. No, this is a positional death. Look with me, if you will, briefly at Ephesians chapter 2. It's right after Galatians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, dis- excuse me, sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's death. This isn't a practical death. It's a, it's a positional death. Dead in trespasses, walking according to the course of the world, following a different master. We lived in a way that was the opposite of life. This is our old way. This is what it means to be found in Adam. Dead in trespasses and sin. Having no life means I don't even have the ability to choose apart from God's work of grace in my heart. He goes on to say in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, what does it point back to? Being saved by grace through faith. Faith, even the act of faith is a gift of God, because if I am dead, I bring nothing to the table. This is a positional death. And being found in Jesus positionally is the only thing that matters. It's the primary relationship that changes everything. Being found in Him. Life apart from Jesus is bankrupt. True righteousness comes only through the recognition. That apart from Jesus' sacrifice for my sins, I am nothing. The people in Philippi needed to connect with this truth. This is the reality that I need to live in every moment of every day. Starts with a fixed position. You know, without this measure of faith, it's impossible to please him. Hebrews 11 tells us, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Do you think that by taking all of these things that are gained to me and amassing this massive pile of good, it's going to be enough. You're missing the point. It's impossible to please him. If you recall, I mentioned to you that when I was 10 years old, I prayed a prayer to accept Jesus. You know, that very act, though noble it seemed, was still an effort to advance Mike in the eyes of others. My heart in praying the prayer, I remember this. I remember thinking to myself, you know what, this is a good thing. Dad says this all the time. I need to do it. 
Mom says this all the time. I need to do it. My Sunday school teacher says this every week. I need to do it. But I don't need to do it because I'm desperate and dire and in need of Jesus. No, I need to do it. In my mind, I'm thinking, I need to do it because this will be pleasing to them. Doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. It wasn't until I was 18 years of, old, 18 years of age and sitting in the quiet of my own room that I finally connected with my need to be found in Christ. Stop worrying about what others think. Stop caring, caring so much about others' opinions of you and run to Jesus, brothers and sisters, as the only way of being right with the Father. This fixed position changes everything. You know, maybe my journey defines you a little bit this morning. Maybe you're still there. Maybe you're on that treadmill, on that exercise bike. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're swinging at shadows. Kids, maybe you're battling with all of this and you're saying, you know what, I I do a lot of good things, but I'm just really struggling. I don't know where I'm at in terms of my walk with God. Maybe that's what you're feeling this morning. It's not too late. It's never too late to step out of your old identity in Adam to pursue a true and lasting relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, Paul soldiers on in verse 10. Not only does he stress to them the importance of a fixed position, being found in him, but he goes on in this, in this dialogue to stress the urgency of a focused passion. Focused passion in verse 10. He says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know, this, this knowledge, when he says that I may know him, this knowledge is something special. It's not just factual. Kids, this isn't a knowledge that you can simply memorize the list, good. No. It's not factual. It's, it's experiential. It's the way a husband knows a wife. There's a personal relationship there. There's an intimacy there in that journey, in that walk, in that relationship. I want to really know him. I want to seek his face. I want to know the joy that comes from walking with him. I want to experience the peace that comes from being fully surrendered to his ways. I I want to fully abandon my agenda. Fully abandon my agenda. that I might live a life fully devoted to him. It's more than factual. It's experiential. But this knowledge is also more than emotional. It's substantive. I want to know you, God. I want to know you intimately. He says, I want to know the power of your resurrection. I want to experience that in my life. What does he mean when he says the power of your resurrection? Well, I want to know the victory Over sin. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, right? He was buried and he came out of the grave. He rose victorious over sin and death. You know, we want to live in a way that that reflects our love for him. I want to know that power, God. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul writes in Romans 6, may it never be. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer? I want to know that victory over sin. 
I want to experience grace in my relationships. I want to have a love for the unlovable. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I want that to live inside of me. And I want that to give birth to a way of life that's dynamic and radical. And the opposite of damning, but life-giving. This power comes as we abandon self that we might live for a higher cause. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. But not only that, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, he says. I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In other words, just as Jesus died, so did I. So did I. You're be saying, what? When I place my faith in Jesus, and I know his sufferings, the fellowship, sharing his sufferings, it means I'm putting to death my old way of thinking, my old way of processing. I'm shedding those old ways of living, those old priorities of being devoted to me. Those things that were gain for me, I'm putting them to death. And just as Jesus was willing to suffer, so must I be willing to live to the abandonment of self, to pursue a radical mission to the detriment of the American dream. What kind of a life has Jesus called us to? What kind of a life does really knowing him mean? means I say, you know what? God has blessed me with resources. Why? So that I might advance his mission. God has blessed me with a job. Why? So that I can give sacrificially for the sake of his kingdom. This is a radical devotion, brothers and sisters. And how, how does this resonate with us this morning? When you think about it, what does it really mean to know him? A focused passion. Am I committed to running hard after him in this way? Or am I too easily distracted by the ways of this world? Am I quick to allow the mission of Jesus Christ to dictate my priorities? Or am I more prone to simply fill in the cracks with what is left? God, I'll give you Sunday. I'll be passionately devoted on Sunday. But God, Monday through Saturday, that's mine. You know, if we allow the mission of Jesus to penetrate our hearts, to infiltrate those dark spaces, to give us that faith and to give us the passion to really, truly know him, there's going to be some startling changes in our lives that will come as a result. Our quiet times will be different. You know what? I, I'll just be really honest with you. Sometimes when my alarm goes off in the morning, and I know that if I wake up when it goes off, I'll have 30 minutes to be in the Word. That's a good chunk. I mean, that's, not, that's nothing huge, but it's significant enough to really, really gain some growth 
in my walk with God. You know, I see, I, I see that alarm going off, and I'm thinking to myself, what do I need more right now? Do I need sleep, or do I need the words of Christ to minister to my heart? Many times, I hit the snooze button, and I let my quiet times fritter away because of my lack of commitment to run hard after God with a focused passion. But you know what? If I have a desire to really know Him, what changes with my quiet time? I can't get enough. You know, I'm waking up at the crack of dawn. I want to dive in his word because without it, I will die. His words are life. When I get home at the end of a busy day, I just want to veg and I want to sit and I want to watch something on TV. Well, one something turns into three to four hours of something. Then I go to bed late and I'm back to the grind again the next day and I'm struggling. Well, you know what? If, If I have a focused passion to really know him, then my quiet time's are going to be rich, and I am going to be eager to run to that well because that well is the source of life for me. Quiet times will change. My giving will change. You know, as you go through Scripture, 10% is expected of all of us when it comes to giving generously to the work of God's mission. But you know what? Giving until it hurts flows out of a heart of worship. Jesus gave it all. So must I. You read in scripture about what the first century church was committed to. Brothers and sisters, they sold their land. They sold their property, those things that had value. Why? That they might give generously to what it was that God was doing. He was turning the world upside down and they wanted to be a part. They looked at their resources as though they were God's. And they said, God, you gave me money. I'm going to use it for your honor for your glory. You know, the American dream says, carve it out for yourself. Build yourself this posh little nest egg that when you're old, you can live off the fat for the end of your days. And, and you're, you're frittering it away on something that's, that's worthless. God is saying, invest it for eternity. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> invest it for eternity. Giving would change. Pursuing gospel opportunities would change. We'd be willing to go where Jesus is not, where, where Jesus is not known. We'd be willing to engage our communities, reaching across racial barriers, socioeconomic barriers, shedding the comforts of white middle-class suburbia that we might reach the impoverished, moving into the public school systems, taking them back for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of His name, demonstrating a commitment and a passion and a focus to turn the world upside down for the sake of Jesus. We'd be willing to embrace the awkward. You say, what? You know, you know those moments where you're thinking to yourself, man, I really should step out and share Jesus here. And you say, man, I don't know what I'll say. What if he doesn't accept it? What if she doesn't listen to those words that I've said? How is that going to change the dynamics of my relationship? You know what? Who cares? Apart from Jesus, where is that individual going? So stop worrying, stop caring, embrace the awkward, move into that space and say, you know what? Jesus has changed my life. He can change yours too. Can I, tell, can I share with you something that's really, really important? You know, some of us maybe have lived in our neighborhoods for a long time and you say, you know what? I don't even know my neighbors. I don't know them by name. I certainly don't pray for them at this point. We kind of just keep to ourselves. Well, you know what? Now it's time to say, 
a radically devoted mission, a life committed to knowing him deeply, sharing in his sufferings, embracing that awkward and saying, you know what, I'm ready. Put me in the game, coach. I'm ready to make a difference that I might know him. I want others to know him. I want them to be drawn into the richness of that relationship. I know I've hit a lot. But let me ask you a question. Are we ready for this type of commitment? Oh, that we as a church would have this kind of focused passion. I long to know him in this way. You might be saying to yourself, you know what, Mike, when you talk about knowing him, I mean, that's, that's a relationship with God. All this other stuff, this is mission. Well, you know what, folks? We're never going to have a passion to share the light of Jesus Christ with the world around us if we are not so overwhelmed with his greatness and the intimacy that comes from knowing him deeply. So knowing him really is where it starts. And out of that flows this beautiful picture that God had for all of his people. And God desires each and every one of us to play a part in that. Are we ready for this type of commitment? What would happen if the church of Jesus Christ was committed in this manner? What would happen if Rock Valley Bible Church was committed deeply in this manner? The world would be turned upside down. That all would know the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. This church wouldn't be the same. Rockford would not be the same. Paul longed for this. We should too. You know, how, how does this sit with you this morning? If, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, you know what, Mike, this is a really tall order. It's a hard thing to live up to. Well, I am no doubt redeemed positionally in Christ. I battle with my own schlubbish, schlubbishness every moment of every day. I invented a word, sorry. You know, and that keeps me from pursuing him with a focused passion. You know, there's, there's a lot of ick inside of my heart. That keeps me from running hard after Jesus every moment of every day. You know, I'm here to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, that we're not alone. We're in good company. In fact, Paul goes on to say that he struggled too. In fact, he writes on in verse 11. He says, not, or that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul ran hard after a life that mattered with focused passion. Why? Because Jesus ransomed his broken life. And Jesus made Paul his very own. What's more, is I, I too have been bought with a price. What I do with this truth matters. Though Paul undoubtedly understood that the power of the Lord's resurrection was for today, there was an element of waiting for that final day when his power would, would be consummated in our ultimate resurrection and glorification. There was a future grace. That's our third point tonight, today. There was a future grace that Paul longed for, that his heart ached for. He says, I press on to make it my own. I run hard after it, knowing that sanctification 
is progressive. God's plan for me is a process. So how do I achieve it? Well, the answer is found in verses 13 and 14. Forget what lies behind. Past failures. You know, I I screw up a lot. (laughs) I make a ton of mistakes. I look at the way I am with my family. And you talk about um, caring about what other people think. You know, there's a very significant difference sometimes in the way I parent my kids in private from the way that I parent them in front of other people. And I seek forgiveness a lot. You can ask my kids, what kind of a dad am I? I make a lot of mistakes. I raise my voice. I say things sometimes that I regret. You know, and if I'm not careful, I can allow those failures to really determine, you know, so much about the present, right? It becomes self-defeating. I get to that point where I'm just like, what's the use? I'm such a schlub. I fail. <laughs> I screw up. I've lost, I've lost all hope. My, my kids see the fact that I, I, I can sometimes be such a big, fat hypocrite in the way that I talk, in the way that I communicate. Well, what would God have in that, in that moment? Forget what lies behind. You know, some of you might even be looking at your families this morning and say, Phew, I blew it this morning. <laughs> I really struggled. Getting ready for church? Man, harsh words, whatever. You know, forget what lies behind. Past failures, forget them. Seek forgiveness. Make it right. Some of the most tender moments I've had with my family and with my kids are those moments where I've screwed up the worst and I'm sitting down with my kids and I'm saying, man, forgive me. Forgive me. You experienced, you, you experienced a dad that wasn't dominated by the spirit of grace, but a dad that was dominated by, by his own flesh. That's wrong. Would you forgive me? Seek forgiveness. Repent. Move on. Past failures. But you know, not only that, he says, I, I, forgetting those things that lie behind, there's successes in there too, right? There's successes in the midst of all of that. Forget what lies behind. Forget those past successes. Future grace isn't earned. Let go of the past. And strain forward to what lies ahead. Reach for it. Finish strong. I press toward the mark of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He longs for you to know the joy of a life that is solely committed to him. That's what he died for. Never forget that. That's what you've been called to. Never forget that. He desires for you to seek him with a focused passion that you might really, truly know him. I mean, know him. Experience the joy that comes from a deep fellowship with him. Know the joy that comes from walking with him every moment of every day. Know the victory that comes from being devoted to him. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his suffering. He desires for you to lay aside every encumbrance, successes, failures. He desires you to dig in. He desires for you to dig in and finish strong. So let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. What are the areas in which God is speaking to your heart this morning? What are those areas? Where do you find yourself in this continuum of grace? Running hard after Jesus? Or hopelessly swinging at shadows? 
You know, Paul says in verses 15 and 16 that those of us who are mature in Christ ought to think this way, ought to live life through this lens. You know, as we close our time out this morning, um, I don't know how you guys normally do it, but some things that, that I'm, I'm going to ask that we do is that we take an opportunity to, to really turn in as families. Um, if you're coming alone, if you're here alone, then maybe you can be brought into another family for the sake of just encouragement and growth. But, but here's, here's what I'm going to ask that we do, is that we take an opportunity in the last few moments that we have together here this morning and really do some business with God. Do some business with God. That we would ask these questions as we've, as we've gone through this text about those areas in which, in which maybe we've fallen short. You may be areas in which you're, you're putting yourself ahead of God's mission. You know, I think, of, I think of young people, you know, children, students, teenagers, thinking through and saying, you know, am I really committed to living life with a focused passion? Am I committed to running hard after Jesus? Or is this all about doing what mom and dad say right now? In other words, if mom says, wake up in the morning and read your Bible first thing, you do it. Are you doing it because you're passionate about growing in your relationship with God? Or are you doing it because mom and dad say you need to do it? I'm not saying don't obey mom and dad. Obey mom and dad, right? But where's your heart in that? Are you embracing it out of a deep, and desire, out of a deep desire and a passion to run hard after him? Parents, think, think about this from, from the vantage point of the way that we shepherd our families. You know, the way that we're encouraging our kids. Are we, are we looking at life through the lens of what others are going to say of us? We don't want to be that family, right? That family with kids that are all over the place. Or are we really, truly, honestly committed to shepherding them into a deeper devotion of Jesus? I'll tell you, they're never, gonna, they're never going to be what we're not first hemorrhaging as leaders in our home. You know what I mean? We can hope that our kids would grow up to love God, to have a passion for him. But if, as the leader of my home, dads, I'll say this to you guys, as the leader of my home, if I'm not demonstrating what that looks like, my kids aren't going to get it. They're not going to get it. So as dads, it starts with us. We need to be committed and passionately devoted. Moms, the same. We want our daughters to grow up to learn what it means to be a young lady that honors God with her life, then where are they going to see that? They're going to see that in you. They're going to see that in you. And maybe these are areas that, that God is already speaking to your heart about. Seniors. I'm not there yet. Certainly not retired. Long ways to go. But I can say that the older I get, the easier it is for me to go into coast mode. To see life as, as though I've, I've, I've been there, done that, and I'm ready to move on and let the younger people carry the torch. But you know what? We don't retire from God's mission, right? We seize maybe a different aspect of the mission. Maybe looking at life and saying, you know what? As I get older, I need to be just as passionately devoted to loving Jesus, running hard after him, and reaching for the young people because I got to prepare them for a handoff. I need to show them what it means to live a life fully devoted to the king. We don't waste our lives. We spend it. We've got a vapor. We've got a small vapor. 
So as we take the last few minutes of time together, these are some things I just want you to talk about and pray about as family. Okay? We're going to take probably three minutes, um, and then I'll close this out in prayer. But uh, let's take just, a, let's take just a, a few moments to really do business with the Lord. and let, let God speak through his spirit in those areas that maybe he's encouraging you to confess, to seek forgiveness, and to commit together as family. Close out our time here this morning. I know in my own heart, Lord, even in preparation for this time, God, you have nudged me about the ways in which the Pharisee is too strong in my own heart. Lord, in my own flesh, God, I desire to put myself forward. I care too much about what people think. I uh, battle with um, wanting what I want and on my terms, God. I wrestle with making safe decisions, Lord, as opposed to living my life in a way that reflects the honor and the glory of your name. I'm fearful, God, when it comes time to share my faith with others. And God, I know that all of these inhibitions, God, all of these weaknesses, all of these shortcomings come because I fail to connect with the reality of who you are. I fail to experience the joy that comes from knowing you. I fail to live out my life with a focused passion to pursue you hard and trying to serve you on an empty tank and doing it in my flesh. Lord, I pray that as we come away from your text this morning, that we'll come away changed and transformed, that you will work in our hearts, that you will help us to go our separate ways with a renewed passion and a renewed excitement to run hard after you. Lord, we thank you for who you are, for all that you've done. We give you all the praise and all the glory for everything that you bring about in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.